Welcome to a new episode of the Sports Mecca Podcast. Along with my colleague Sam Hengeli, I'm your host, Stephen Abramo. Today, we have the opportunity to speak with New York sports writer for The Athletic and former longtime Kansas City sports writer, Rustin Dodd. Rustin, thanks for coming on today and talking with us. We appreciate the time. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. So we'll kind of start with a little update about your situation in New York. You've been writing for The Athletic for, I believe, two years. Kind of you know, give us an update about what you've been doing. I know you've been doing a lot of like feature stories. So if you want to give us an update about how that's been going. Yeah, so my, my job is kind of hard to explain sometimes. I'm based in New York, and I still write a lot about baseball in a lot of uh, New York baseball, but also just kind of more like national baseball stuff. Then I'm also able to sort of branch off and do features on everything. It can be very kind of random stories. You know, it's, it's nice, though, because, you know, I'm still able to, like, maybe write about, you know, the Chiefs once a year or so during maybe, you know, during the football season or, like, the NFL postseason. And then, you know, there's opportunities to just do kind of feature stories on, on other stuff. Mm-hmm. Before we kind of go into maybe, like, how you kind of started off, your your sports writing career locally in Overland Park in KC, but how was that transition moving from KC and living in the Midwest and then going to the East Coast? I feel I feel like that would kind of be a difference of scenery. Yeah, I mean it's it's a lot different, obviously. I mean I enjoy it just living in, in New York and the the number of people around and the energy in the city and all those sort of things. I mean, it's, it's just like a great place to live. You know, it's funny if you follow sports, like you realize intuitively that there are a lot of teams in New York. You know, there's two baseball teams, two basketball teams, two football teams. And I mean, if you count the New Jersey Devils, there's like three hockey teams in the market. So, you know, it's like, you know that they have so many teams, but it, it is shocking when you are around here day to day on how much sports are just happening at all times. In Kansas City, um, you know, you have the Chiefs, the Royals, and Sporting Kansas City, obviously. And then, you know, most people are, are college sports fans. So you, you do have those three local colleges like KU, K-State, and Missouri. So that, that's like six teams that people do sort of follow. So it can feel like there's a lot going on in Kansas City on, on the sports calendar. But then when you're, when you're in New York, it's almost like double that. And so it is, it is like, it, not that I have to necessarily keep track of everything day to day, but it is like... It is just shocking how much stuff is going on at all times and all like, you know, there'll be certain teams where it's like the New York Islanders, for instance, were just in the conference finals in the the Stanley Cup playoffs. And it's like, I knew nothing about the New York Islanders and barely paid attention to that at all. Whereas like if, you know, if a Kansas City team was in, um, you know, the conference finals of the of the playoffs or whatever, you know, I I feel like the the city would be super locked into that. Whereas here, it's like everything is just so, so fragmented and the audiences can be kind a niche that it's um it's just it's just a kind of way different sports experience and it's it, it's it's like it's hard to even just keep track of all the local teams let alone you know what's going on beyond that yeah for sure so we'll kind of go back to focusing on you kind of growing up how involved were you in sports growing up in overland park and you know maybe at what point did you decide that you wanted to take up sports writing as a career yeah that's a good question i grew up in overland park as you said 
And I played a ton of sports when I was a kid, played almost everything. The two main things that I loved the most were basketball and baseball. And so th- that was kind of my like entry into sports, obviously, as most kids are. But I also just, I grew up reading the Kansas City Star newspaper. You know, this is, you know, kind of in the mid-90s, early 2000s. That was kind of the time when I was in elementary school, middle school, high school. And so that was kind of the era. And, and news- daily newspapers just kind of like this was right at the beginning of the internet. Dial-up internet was a thing in the late 90s and early 2000s. But it, And you could go on to like ESPN.com and read, you know, like about sports. But like that was almost like it as far as like internet. So it's like if you wanted to read about sports, you had to read the daily newspaper. And I was like the kind of kid that I read the newspaper almost every day before school, mostly the sports section, just sort of like diving into the box scores. And I loved like memorizing the history and, you know, reading about like who won the World Series every year from like 1960 on. You know, like it's like that kind of stuff that like little kids do. It's like I loved memorizing that like sort of trivia stuff. I was always like reading and thinking about sports and and kind of obsessed with it. But I, I don't know that I, I thought about writing and like sports writing as a you know as a career or as like a thing that people could do. Maybe until maybe when I got into like my final years of high school and then I, I went to school at um, at KU and I started. I just decided to major in journalism mostly because I was unsure of what else I would be interested in, and always figured I could always start there and go somewhere else, or you know, go go do something else later. So then, yeah, and then I, I started working at the school newspaper in at KU, the University Daily Kansas. I, I just sort of loved the the process of you know writing about sports and reporting and and you know everything that goes into it. And so I graduated from school in 2009 and and got a job at the Star about a year later. And I, I worked part time there during college and a little bit afterwards. And so yeah, that that's the basic that's the basic path on on how I got into it. Uh, Russell, uh, thank you for coming on the show. Um, first question I, I have for you um, is. What was it like covering your uh, alma mater, the University of Kansas? It, it was great. You know, it's funny. I uh, this is like a long story. It's like when you, when you cover certain teams, right? Like you sort of lose some of the fandom aspects of you know if you if you cover something and you're around it every day, you just sort of like if you were ever a fan of those teams, you, you sort of lose that, and you're you're not a fan when you're really covering something. It's just like you know you, you're not really consuming it in that way. You're so much more worried about telling the stories and and uh, and making sure you're on top of the news and like you know hitting deadline and all that like stuff but the reason I say that is like when I was a kid two kind of teams that I most cared about when I was a kid were like the KU basketball team and the Royals um, like those were the two teams I followed the most like I, I obviously I watched the Chiefs like in the 90s and I you know I watched them every Sunday and also follow them pretty closely but it was like I just had a much stronger you know we my family never really went to like Chiefs games or anything but we would go to like a lot of Royals games during the summer you know like maybe four or five a year or so and so KU basketball and the Royals were the the two things that I was most interested in when I was a kid and so when I did I, I covered high schools at the Star for a year or two and then I started covering KU basketball and football in 2012. So yeah, they, they, it's kind of funny that the two things that I ended up covering at the Star were the two things that I liked the most, which kind of ruined those <laughs> the things from my childhood as being a fan of those teams. But but covering KU was great. 
actually when I was in college, I had covered the team for the Daily Kansan, and I was lucky enough to be like great timing because that was 2000, like. So I ended up covering the national championship team when I was in school. So that was really fortunate. And then four years later, I was covering them for the star. And like literally a month into, I I started as the reporter in like March of 2012, right before they went to the national title game and lost to Kentucky. So that was, that was really cool. And then, yeah, those, those teams were really interesting when I was covering them. They had, you know, the first year they had, uh, like, Ben McLemore was on the team. That was his year with Jeff Withy and Travis Relford. And then the next year was the MB Wiggins year. So that was a very interesting team to cover. And then in the final couple of years I was on the beat was as Frank Mason and Devontae Graham were getting a little bit older. I, I did miss some of those teams in 17 and 18 when they were pretty good. I mean, I've been lucky enough to cover a lot of games in a lot of different venues and you know like Allen Fieldhouse is Allen Fieldhouse for a reason it's it's probably in the top maybe top 10 of all venues and all across sports just in the experience of going there and, and watching the game so it was great to just be able to cover games there follow those college basketball team around for for a couple of years was was amazing and definitely yeah I could definitely relate to you yeah, the Jayhawks and Royals, those were really the two teams I really were, was like probably most attached to as a kid. And I didn't really go to many Chiefs games, but mostly Royals and then some KU football basketball games. So my next question is, in your opinion, during your time covering KU basketball, who was the best one-and-done player that you covered in Lawrence? That's a good question. In terms of player who's had the best NBA career, I guess it would be Embiid, right? Um, and yeah. I, I, guess, I guess it's I guess the answer. I guess the answer is maybe both. I was gonna say who the who the best player was, or like the most effective. And I guess maybe it would be Joel Embiid. Obviously, he got hurt that year, and I, I do think that people overlook Andrew Wiggins, how good he was at KU, in part because the team just wasn't very good, and and, and partly the team wasn't very good because they they just didn't really have a lot of good guards. They, you know, they were making do with uh, Nadir Tharp and Frank Mason, who was a freshman, and just sort of learning things. So, like, that team was kind of flawed. I think Andrew Wiggins averaged, like, 17 points and 11 rebounds, or at least, like, 8 or 9 rebounds or something like that. I mean, he had an incredible freshman year, but it, the expectations were so high, and he, he did have some flaws as well as a player. He just wasn't a great a great shooter at that point, and he's still an okay shooter, but not, not a great even shooter now. Yeah, but so I, I guess... Joel Embiid was the most just physically impressive player. Like, you could just watch him at KU and just understand, like, okay, this guy is going to be an NBA star. Like, it just was so obvious and and so amazing to watch him play. He came into KU as a freshman, and I remember the basic kind of thought around him was, okay, he's seven feet tall, he's really athletic and has, like, you know, coordination for a seven-footer or whatever, but he's really raw. So I remember the, the KU coaches were thinking, okay, he's gonna, this is going to be a little bit of a, you know, development process as a, during his freshman year, but he's going to come back as a sophomore, and then he may be literally, like, in, in position to be the number one pick in the draft after two years. Like, that, that was kind of, like, what they thought of him. And then literally, you know, like a month into his freshman year, he had just like he, he improved so incredibly fast that like a month into his career they were like okay he's gonna be the number one pick this year <laughs> like he was just like that good and I, you know I remember there were funny things like funny stories like um his first couple of games he wasn't really blocking any shots 
like the, the he just wasn't protecting the rim very well. And I remember the KU coaches were a little bit disappointed and, and kind of like, okay, we need, we need a rim protector. He's seven feet tall. And I remember that, you know, the basic story was they showed him footage of Jeff Whiffy blocking shots and they just told him like, Hey, we really need you to do this. And then it was like, he watched that footage and was just realized like, Oh, okay, this is how you do it. And literally within a game or two, he was, you know, blocking shots as well as anybody so mm-hmm. it was just like he had this innate ability to just see things and then pick up skills that was incredible but I, I will also say that Ben McLemore as a freshman at KU was an incredibly valuable player because I mean he was just a great three-point shooter and, and incredibly athletic and was really an efficient player I, I can't remember off the top of my head what he shot from three but it was well I mean it was over 40 percent you know he was athletic and they could throw lobs to him that team was very short on depth. They really only had you know, like five or six players, but they were still a number one seed and, and probably could have beaten Michigan and gone to the Final Four that year in 2012 and 2013. Ben McLemore, like, he was, uh, I think he was always kind of an underrated player. I guess technically he was not a one and done because he had redshirted the year before with some academic issues, but he only played one season. But those would probably be the, the first two that come to mind. Yeah, definitely. Uh... I remember, and I remember watching uh, Joel Embiid in the Jordan Brand Classic years ago, and I remember him just swatting Julius Randle and just seeing his energy and seeing some of the potential that he could bring to KU. And then, oh, Wiggins was interesting. There were games where he really showed his potential, and then there were some games that you questioned, like, how is this dude, like, the number one uh, ranked player in America, the best prospect since LeBron? Yeah, so that that year was definitely interesting. Yeah, I do agree with the uh, the lack of guard play that year too. Is something that we didn't really consider. I mean, Dio Tharp, he was all right, but he wasn't really that guy who would get you over the top and get you to a Final Four. With that 2013-2014 season, how do you how do you think the NC Torrent would have played out if Joel Embiid would have? stayed healthy that whole year yeah that's a good question i i mean they lost stanford in the second round and they they would have beaten stanford if they had Embiid. um you know that they would have gotten through there um and i, I guess part of their seeding issue was the fact that Embiid had been hurt so they had been struggling a little bit i do think that Embiid had the talent to carry them deep into march I do think that they were just sort of, they, they weren't a great shooting team that year because Wiggins obviously wasn't a great shooter. And then the players they had around him at the time, Wayne Selden was a freshman, but he was not a great shooter yet. They, they could have probably gone deep. I, I think there's, you know, maybe a little bit of a revisionist history of saying like, well, if Embiid was healthy, they could have like won the title or anything like that. I'm not, I'm not certain of that, but I'm, I'm, I can't even remember who, 2013, 2014, I guess that was the year, uh, UConn. UConn. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, it was kind of a fluky year <laughs> in, in college basketball. You know, that was an odd UConn team that went and won it all. So I, I don't know. I guess I don't even remember who was in the final four that year with them. Florida, UConn, and then Kentucky, Wisconsin. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that was the Wisconsin then went back to the, the, the final four the next year. Yeah. Wisconsin probably should have won it all that year or, or had a chance to. I don't know. KU was. They they could have gone to the final four that year, but I'm, I'm not sure that they were you know a team that was set up to where they would have just been an obvious title favorite or anything like that. Definitely, it's something I, I debate about all the time. Connor Frankip in that tournament, the first two games he shot so well, so it seemed like you know the way he was starting to like figure it out. You think that like KU could definitely had a possibility to make a deep run with a healthy Embiid, like thinking about that as, as well. Yeah, well, I think that this is not just a, a, a Bill Self thing, but this was going on with lots of 
especially the power programs in Kentucky and Duke and that era of kind of one and dones where all in all these teams were sort of trying to emulate what Kentucky had done, you know, really stacking up, you know, the best recruits, you know, the top 10 guys and, and whatnot, bringing them in as freshmen and then sending them off in the NBA and kind of following that model. And what teams found out, though, was that, like, if you recruit a guy like Andrew Wiggins or a Kelly Oubre, you know, those guys who are long and like lean and wings and that they have so much just potential as because of the their body type and like they're six seven six eight whatever but they play guard and they're the guys that the nba is kind of really drilling over because of their long-term potential so they are the top 10 recruits but a lot of times those guys just when they're 18 or 19 years old they're not skilled in the way that they will be when they're fully developed. Mm-hmm. So they're not they're not great shooters and they're not great ball handlers and they're not, you know, they don't quite understand the game as well as they will later on. I think that teams realize pretty quickly that they're there you're actually better off sometimes with a six three or six four combo guard who's a junior or senior, like a Devontae Graham. I mean, he's a little shorter than that, but you're better off with the Devontae Graham as a junior or senior than you are with Andrew Wiggins as a freshman. Kentucky's run into that the last few years. They did, they don't shoot threes very well because they're constantly recruiting six six wings who are you know you know built like NBA small forwards, but they might not be able to shoot like like some guys can. So I think there's this balance in college basketball between trying to recruit good shooters and guys who will be on campus for a long time, but also. If you're KU or Kentucky or Duke or whatever, you got to recruit the best guys. So it's an interesting time for college hoops. And I think I think KU's kind of gone back the other way just a little bit. I mean, obviously, they still try to get the best players, but I think they've thought more in terms of recruiting for, okay, let's try to get a guy who we at least know is going to be on campus for two or three years, as opposed to like, well, we need the number one guy because, you know, he's going to help us win. And it's like, well, he, he might not help you win a title because it's kind of rare for freshmen to uh, to win championships in, in college basketball. It's happened a few times, but it's not like it, it's happening every year. So I think there's teams that become a little bit smarter about how to how to build their program. Yeah, I de- yeah, definitely. I do agree with that a lot. Like freshmen that come in, you know, they rely a lot more on their athleticism in high school and they can just score so easy. And then once they get to the college game, they have to adjust rapidly. And I think that with the one thing about now with the uh, transfer portal is like you can easily find guys that can fit in your program, like get a shooter and then you'll get somebody who's been in college basketball who you know can contribute like a lot quicker than relying on like the number one freshman or a five-star recruit coming in as a freshman and making a quicker impact. And then uh, why does uh, Bill Self get more criticism for his uh, tournament losses than compared to like a Tom Izzo or a John Calipari or a uh, Jim Beheim? Yeah, that's a good question. I've thought a lot about this, not that specific question about Bill Self and criticism, but just the way, you know, narratives get established with coaches and whatnot. And also just the idea of, you know, when you're judging NCAA tournament success, sample sizes are so small, right? Like Bill Self has been at KU now for 18 years. I often think about this. So he's been to three Final Fours, and he's won one championship in those 18 years. Like, how many Final Fours should Bill Self have gone to in that 18 years? If he had gone to four, you know, right? Like, if he had gone to four Final Fours in 18 years, I think most people would say, that's that's pretty good. And then if he had gone to five in 18 years, everybody would say, like, that's incredible. You know, like, that's, 
like, you know, like, I don't know what Tom Izzo has been to in terms of Final Fours in the last 20 years or whatever, but I think Michigan State, what have they been to, like, five or six Final Fours since yeah. 2000 or so? So that basically means if one game changes, you know, one Elite Eight goes a different way in the course of, you know, 15 years, just like one game, that changes the whole perception of, of a coaches in the NCAA tournament. And I, I think if you compare, you know, Bill Self to even somebody like Coach K the last 20 years, I mean, their NCAA tournament success is almost identical. The one difference is that Duke uh, won a, a second championship. You know, they won one in 2010 and then and again in 2015. Also, they had the one back in 2001. But if you're just comparing since Bill Self got to Kansas and Coach K at, at Duke, they just the sample sizes, as I said, were are just like so small in terms of you know how many Final Fours should Bill Self have gone to since two thousand three? I don't know, probably four or five. But he's been to three, so it's like he's one off of kind of what he should have been to. So it, you could say he's underperformed a little bit in March, but like in the grand scheme of things, I think it's a it's a tough thing to judge sometimes when you're looking at the. The, like kind of like the full lens of these things and you know John Calipari's had a lot of trouble getting back to Final Fours since they went to uh, in, in 2012 um, and then they obviously they had those two years uh, where they were and then you know they lost when they were undefeated but since 2015 or whatever they've struggled to get back so I, I think it's 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 a tough thing to do and obviously in a one-and-done situation or one in you know in an NCAA tournament things can be magnified and you're kind of judging off these small samples. And I think if you're in Kentucky, that John Calipari is probably getting a little bit of, uh, you know, criticism. And the same thing happens in Duke and North Carolina and all the similar programs. Hey, John Calipari, still trying to make that NCAA tournament. Couldn't make it this year. <laughs> the other thing, too, it's, you know, Bill Self has had plenty of tournament success. Could he have gone to another Final Four or two? Yeah, for sure. He's had the teams to do it. But it's, he's also never had, you know, he's never had those really down years. The last few years, they've had a, a, some years that have felt like down years, but they've never had the year where they just randomly go 15 and 20 and miss the tournament. I think that alone is, is a pretty impressive feat. KU just does so long in the regular season that they'll just, like, always be, like, high-seeded because they'll, they'll win all the important, some of the, uh, the key games that will um, boost their resume that, may, that maybe, you know, they might look more like a six seed, but they'll be a three seed because based on a couple of results. So that, that so KU's mostly sometimes like last season, like they were kind of like a more of like a six seed that was a three seed because they were they didn't have a bad loss and they were winning they they were finished second in the in a very good Big Twelve conference. So I think that's maybe one of the reasons is that KU's always been like a high seed that they're more vulnerable to uh to uh, having some bad tournament losses that way, too. Yeah, no doubt. And, I mean, obviously they lost the, the pandemic tournament in 2020. You know, if they, if they go to a Final Four that year, that's four Final Fours in the last 18 or 19 years, and it looks a little different as well. So, yeah, they just, I, mean, I think they've just had some bad luck. You know, the one year for me that Bill Self really could have, you know, separated himself and maybe changed the, the narrative was the year they lost to VCU ah. in, in 2011. I mean, I, to me, that's... That's the one. If you're looking back, I mean, there, there's been some, you know, some some disappointing losses in the tournament. You know, obviously the year before they lost to Northern Iowa and they had a great team. And then the, you know, there's the, you know, the Bucknell and Bradley years, and people mention that. But with, to me, that that Elite Eight loss to VCU is the one that really goes back to haunt them. 
they had the best team in the country that year and certainly the best team left in the tournament. And um, I think that was the year that they, if he wins that in title, and so that's, you know, a, a second title in a four-year span, then all of a sudden I think everything else looks different, you know, moving forward. You know, it's like you get to that another Final Four in 2018, and then that's your, you know, fourth Final Four as opposed to your third. So little, like, little game, like there's those games here and there that can kind of change everything about how things are perceived. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who was your favorite Jayhawk basketball player you had to cover? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I always enjoyed Tyshawn Taylor just as somebody to cover, just because he was just a one. He was a fascinating player to watch, but he was just like also great to chat with. You know, he's from New Jersey and sort of has that like East Coast personality, and he would be very like vulnerable and and be very outgoing and talkative and kind of let you know how he was feeling and uh, show his emotions. So I I always really enjoyed him. I loved covering Frank Mason as well. And he was like kind of the opposite of Tyshawn Taylor, right? Like Tyshawn Taylor showed every emotion and Frank Mason showed none. And it was it was honestly kind of hard to like, you know, even when you interviewed him, you would know no emotions as well. He was a very, very like nice guy, very accommodating with reporters, just very kind of humble and like a great guy to be around. Um, but like he would show no emotions on the court and he showed no emotions in the interviews. And I, I remember Bill Self used to say he just sort of had this stone face. But to me, it was it was kind of fascinating to watch him play because you could tell much basketball meant to him and you could tell how, how hard he played and like little guy against the world mentality that he played with. And it was it was just amazing to watch. But it was kind of the opposite of Tyshawn, whereas with Tyshawn, you could see every, you know, every emotion possible. And when things weren't going wrong, he would show it and he would say things. And But both of those guys were probably the, the two that I enjoyed watching and covering the most. Yeah, a, few, a couple of years ago, I worked uh helped Frank Mason at his uh, basketball camp and uh, probably one of the nicest guys I've ever met. Working at his camp, like seeing like him interact with the kids and then like, Giving them, giving them like probably like the nicest shirts and bags. He just showed uh, his just great character being around him, and uh, he was like that at KU. And he's one of my favorite KU guards of all time. Not just for his great play, but his uh, character and his uh, mental toughness, and his just uh, care for people uh, on and off the court as well. So uh, let me uh, take a little bit of a transition to we talked about. KU's like probably their best sport. Let's talk about their uh, worst sport a little bit, KU football. During your time uh, covering at KU and just watching it like outside as like a fan as well, what do you think, why do you think KU has fallen to this uh, position where they are as a football program? I don't know. I feel like this is going to take an entire other podcast to get into. (laughs) Combination of things, right? Like, I think that, you know, one, like, how good should KU be at football, right? They should, they're never going to be like, you know, like the outlier is probably the fact that they, you know, won the Orange Bowl in 2007, right? Like that, that's a once in 25 or once in 40 year outcome for a program like KU. Like they, they should be kind of a middle of the pack, you know, program in the Big 12 and they should probably win between four to eight games, like four to seven games per year, five or seven per year and, Occasionally, they should win eight or nine and go to a better bowl game. And then, you know, if they ever if they ever have another year like where they're in the top ten, that's that's kind of gravy. That that's the kind of the way I view the program, just because of where they are and the recruiting base and the history. And it's I mean, it's tough to recruit you know football. 
football players to Kansas, and you know, there's not I mean, there's good players in the state of Kansas, but there's not you know a ton of them. So it's not like you're in you know Texas or you know Georgia or you know even Ohio or Michigan or like those places where that they just have a lot more players. Plus, you're competing with Kansas State and you're competing with Nebraska and Oklahoma. And there's good programs in the area. So it's a long-winded way of saying so that like they, they should be about an average program and they've been historically bad. And I think what happened was they made one bad hire with Turner Gill, who I think was, you know, not a, a great coach, but probably the idea that you know, KU had come off this Orange Bowl game. They hired Turner Gill to replace Mark Mangino. And they're thinking, like, they're a program that should be winning eight or nine or ten games a year. And I, I'm not sure that they, they are that, right? So I think they pulled the plug maybe too early on Turner Gill, although there were there were issues, you know, with, if you go back, you know, like on some of the discipline in the program and the academics, and that, that was the, the reason at the time. That, and then obviously they had two bad years in a row. But I think what's happened is that, Maybe in hindsight, they should have given Turner Gill, you know, a, a third year at least, or maybe a, you know, a fourth year. And, and maybe things don't get any better, but he's at least recruiting, you know, players into the program and, and bringing like talent and building it up and whatnot. Whereas once they fired him, and then once they hired Charlie Weiss, which was the second horrible move, that they're just been stuck in this cycle of every time you fire a coach. You have so many players leave the program, the numbers go down, the scholarships are an issue, and and if you're doing that every two to three years, like you're just never going to get out of it. I, I think that it's been in the cycle of when you hire two bad coaches in a row, and they were two really bad ones, and then they just haven't been able to get out of it. And I think they've, I mean, they essentially made four bad hires in a row. Uh, <laughs> and, like, I think that probably the worst hire they made was Charlie Weiss, just because, in terms of the fit for the program and what they needed at the time. And they thought that he would kind of be a splashy hire who would help recruit and would be a good X's and O's guy. And, you know, he has his positive qualities for sure, but it, it just didn't work out. It was The fit was not there at all. And so, and in the cycle where they're, I feel, I finally feel like the Lance Leipold from Buffalo, he may not work out, who knows, it's, it's a tough job, but I feel like it's finally like the right kind of hire for KU. Bringing in a guy who's one out of places before is a kind of he builds programs he's not like flashy you know he's, he's not going anywhere either you know so if that makes sense but anyway that i mean that's that's the basic my basic take on ku football but again it's been a few years since i've been around the program on a full-time basis so there are probably people with more expertise on the subject than me yeah yeah definitely Charlie Weiss. that was i mean you look at his record at notre dame and he wasn't even he was like was mediocre there, and uh, they expect somebody like that to uh, build KU football up. It just seemed like that was a setup to failure move. But Whitepool, I actually feel really good about the the hire. It's I think he could possibly get us the program like back on its feet a little bit. I'm not really expecting like much like not like an Orange Bowl or like. Well, I'm hoping that if he'll build the program up so we can get to like six and six and seven and five and win a couple bowl games like like we did with Mangino. That's kind of like just a little bit of what Mangino did at KU is kind of like what I'm hoping that Whitepool will bring to uh, KU. And I 
like the fact that we're getting some of the guys from Buffalo are now coming to KU. So people who have been around his program, whether it's at Buffalo or now at KU, will will be able to kind of, kind of like bring a little bit of that success and build start to build that foundation that can help build a little bit of something at KU as well. No, no, definitely. They they just need to give him a few years to to build a base. But well, you know, they just they need to be patient. But we'll, we'll see if they can be. Right. Thank you so much for providing that content about Kansas. So switching over to baseball, you know, that's what your main sport is as a reporter for the Athletic. You had a three-year stint with the Royals from 2016 to 2018. You you took over from Andy McCullough and then switched to the Royals full time. What was you know some of your maybe favorite memories covering the Royals? And I mean, I would assume there has to be kind of that weird shift covering a college program like Kansas daily and then go into the professional setting like I, ha- I feel like that definitely was a shift to you yeah you know what I always tell people baseball is I mean I, I love baseball as a sport but in terms of journalism and just covering sports baseball is really one of the best sports to cover now it's changed a little bit because of the pandemic and the way there's limitations on everything now but in the normal times or like the before times you were around baseball teams every day right you know so you show up to the ballpark around two or two thirty or three o'clock and the baseball clubhouse you know the royals clubhouse would open around like three forty-five, and it would be open for 45 minutes or an hour before batting practice and you know reporters can go in there and you can build relationships with players you can you know walk up to players and 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 if you're around every day they know who you are and in terms of the access to players and being able to build, you know, real kind of like actual relationships, it's the best sport for that, in my opinion. You know, at the college level, you get, you know, some one-on-one interviews, but it's a lot of, you know, press conferences, a lot of group interviews. It's everything is kind of set up through the school. And, you know, if you look at, I, I've never covered the NFL on a, at a as a beat writer. You know, it's a similar situation where everything is very controlled. You know, baseball is, the, the environment is a lot more relaxed, a lot more loose. You know, they're, they're playing every day, so, they, you know, they, they're all around every day. So it's the ones where you really build sort of unique relationships with the people you're covering. And so I, that was the one thing that I really always kind of appealed to me about it was just kind of being around these guys every day and feeling like you really, you, you might not get to know them, you know, personally, you know, like on some, you know, deep, meaningful level, but you, you feel like what you're writing is, is accurate and true. And you, you do feel like you have, you know, um, a feel for what's going on. Mm-hmm. Speaking of relationships, both Sam and I are interested in what your relationship was like with Ned Yost. I feel like Ned Yost was a unique person to get to know. Ned is now retired and living in Georgia, so I have not uh, talked to him in a year or plus or more. Um, but um, I really enjoyed covering Ned. It, Ned is one of those guys where, you know, he treats everybody the same. I think people see that side of him where he's, you know, very sarcastic and, you know, busting people's chops, you know, and giving people a hard time. As a reporter, one, you know, I, I don't really, I just want people to talk to me right like i just want them to say interesting things and as long as they will talk to me i, I don't really care you know what it takes or what they say but then also with somebody like ned he's like a genuinely nice person right and i think you know that's his personality to give people a hard time and i and i think if he was not a genuinely good person i think it would be harder for him to, to do that but i think people understand if you're around him you realize that you do really have like a real relationship with him 
I don't know if that's the best way to put it, but I, I, I always enjoyed covering him. And he was honest for the most part, not always, but <laughs> nobody's honest all the time and when you're when you're covering him. But but he mostly tried to, to really be as honest as he could be, and that's kind of all you can ask for. Did he uh, dive into some deer hunting stories with you? Oh yeah, I mean the the funny thing about Ned is like he's got a lot of interests that you would that would surprise you, right? Um, we'd ask him about hunting and stuff, but it was like you know we we kind of knew those stories. Like he talked a lot about that in the past. You know, everybody knows he's like hunting with Jeff Foxworthy, and <laughs> he's got like teams and stuff. And I mean, people like knew those stories. Like the funniest stories was like just familiar with the the when you cook you sous vide it it's like that's a french term s-u-s-o-u-s there's a way to like cook with like water pressure or whatever it's like it's it's like a a, a method of for cooking and i guess the term is called sous vide ned one day was just like randomly all excited because he had these steaks that he was it was a day game or something and he was going to go home and make dinner for his wife and family and he was like all excited to explain to us how he, this method that he discovered for cooking steaks. And he was going to go home and sous vide it, and he was explaining the process and how to do it and how he got into it. And it's just like those were kind of the stories that were always kind of fun because he always had something like that going on where he was he, he was you know he's a curious guy like he's interested in the world. And so there there was always like something going on with him in terms of what he what he was doing. So that those were you know more than just like the hunting or like the, that kind of stuff. I, I always enjoyed like that side of that <laughs> yeah because you know sam and i we're not reporters so we just kind of see him during the post game or maybe see his reactions in the dugout during the game so like when you're not interacting with him on a day-to-day level we have different i wouldn't say opinions but we just see different things uh about ned yosh or i guess any manager so was it a royals player or like a any major league player that has kind of stuck out to you that you enjoyed covering or enjoyed writing about it has been a while since i've covered him because he's now he's back on the royals but um like when i was covering the royals i would really enjoyed wade davis um when i was covering the royals i i had we had a fortunate time to be covering them because not only was the team relative i mean they in 2015 they won those world series obviously but even in 2016 they had some injuries and stuff but they were still a competitive team and then in 2017 they were mostly competitive um and so, like, those teams were, they had some talent, and the, those teams were pretty good. But not only that, they, they just had a lot of good guys and, and good talkers. And, you know, this, that's true for most major league clubhouses, I think. But it, I find it fascinating to talk to pitchers about what they do and what they think. You know, pitchers have a lot of time to think about the game. They watch a lot of games. They have thoughts about players and stuff. So there were just a lot of fascinating personalities. And, you know, some guys are not... You know, somebody like Wade Davis, for instance, you know, you, you might not think of him being like this great outgoing personality who loves to talk. And that's more or less true. He, he doesn't. You know, <laughs> like he's a he's more of a quiet, reserved kind of guy. But that guy is, you know, one of the smarter baseball players I think I've been around in terms of, of, of a pitcher and understanding the game and players. And, and so it's like any opportunity you had to, you know, chat with Wade about certain players or or circumstances or what was going on with the team. Like, so that, that's, that's what I think about it. Those players that sometimes people don't realize how thoughtful some of these guys are because they're not necessarily, you know, seeking out a lot of attention or they're not the, you know, the outgoing funny guys, but they, they really do are thoughtful guys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You covered obviously the rules from 16 through 18. Like you said, it's an everyday thing. There's different emotions throughout the season. I want to get your thoughts on what it was like to cover the Yordano Ventura passing 
uh, I guess it was the off season of 2016. It was like January of 2017 and maybe how that was when you first covered it and kind of how, like what type of emotions did you kind of see from the players? Yeah. I mean, it's probably one of the more, if, if not the more, perhaps the most, you know, emotional story that I've ever covered, you know, in my career, it was surreal for one, but also just, tragic on on a number of levels just you know I, I don't know that there's many more tragic things i mean there's a lot of tragic things in life but somebody that young with so much potential to do anything you know in, in your Dino's case it was baseball but five-year-old with you know a potential and his whole life ahead of him and you know he's going to do great things and you know whether it's any industry whether it's any walk of life i, I just don't i don't know that there's many more tragic things that see you know unrealized potential and when something you know like that happens you know and also uh, you know those guys had been through you know some really emotional times with him in, in 14 15 and 16 um and so you know in that baseball clubhouse those guys are those guys are family they're like brothers um and so i think it was one of those things where i don't know that there's any way proper way to grieve or to or or to do that you know all those what you do when something like that happens, you know, but those guys also had to do it in front of, you know, in, 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 a, in a very public fashion, right? It's just, it's a situation. It's just tragic and difficult. And, but it was, you know, I, I just remember, you know, talking to some of those players. I don't know what the right word is, but I felt almost honored that, you know, they would share what they were feeling with me because I'm a conduit to the fans. So they're sharing kind of their emotions with, the Royals fans and it was a very you know a very intense time it's you you want to make sure that you sort of honor that grief or or whatever the right word would be but also do right by those guys who lost somebody so close to them and also I think there's so many people in Kansas City who you know didn't know Jordano Ventura but they they felt like they knew him and they watched him so closely and so I, I just it was a really traumatic and tragic time um, I think for everybody in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When do you think the uh, Royals will uh, will make the postseason again? That's a great question. They should realistically be a 500 or better team next year. Does that get them into the postseason? I'm not sure. The the American League seems to be, and I know that there's a lot of talented teams in the National League West with the Giants, Padres, and Dodgers. There's some good teams in the National League, but for whatever reason, at least to me, it seems like the the American League is a little bit deeper right now. And you've got, you know, you look at the AL East, and you've got, I mean, the Yankees are basically in fourth place right now behind the Blue Jays, Rays, and Red Sox. And so that's four teams that are competing, you know, should be in the playoff on next year. You look at AL West, and the A's and the Astros seem like they're in it every year. And then you look at the Central, and the White Sox seem like they're going to be pretty good for the next year or two and you know the the indians we'll see what happens with them but my, my point is it's there's a lot of there's a lot of teams you got to be better than to get into the postseason so they need they, they certainly are building something i think to where they should have a chance to contend if not next year then the year after that but i i think they've they've got a lot of steps they need to take before then with a lot of their young pitching also improving the offense, frankly. I mean, they've got some talent on the way. Obviously, Bobby Wood Jr. will be up, if not this year, the next year. But, you know, they, they've got to figure out a way to to maximize, like, 
you know, their offense and get some of these guys going that have been struggled. So I think they're a little bit better than they're probably the record shows right now. Um, and they're in, they're in kind of a skid and a slide right now. But uh, I think realistically, they're a, they should be about around 500 next year, maybe a little bit better. And then maybe in 2023 is the year that they really need to, to make sure that they're in position to contend. We'll see how if the, if the, how how they keep um, kind of this core together. If you consider Merrifield and Perez and Montesi and some of those other guys part of the mm-hmm. quote unquote core, mm-hmm. so well, it, it's going to be a challenge. But I, I think they're they're still well positioned. I think they've done a nice job assembling a lot of talent. Now, mm-hmm. kind of trying to making sure that mm-hmm. talent can be successful at the major league level and all kind of all at the same time over the next couple of years. Yeah, and I got one more one more question. Uh, do you think uh, Mike Matheny is the uh, is the manager that the Royals should should hold on to to uh, make a potential run, or do you think eventually do you think that he might not be the answer? You know, I don't feel like I know the situation well enough to make a judgment there one way or the other. But I will say this: maybe you know when we were talking about Ned Yost, major league baseball managers are very overrated in the sense of how much they really impact a team. And like, I, I really think it's you know. Teams, the players are like the thing that are going to determine whether you win or not. And number two, I think the thing that really that the, that is the most important thing for an MLB manager is not really how you use your bullpen or um, you know who, who if you pinch hit or all of those sort of things. Like I, I just don't think like yeah, you can make the right move sometimes, and if you have a good manager, maybe he makes the right move more often than not. But I just don't think in the long run it doesn't matter. I think the most important thing for a major league manager is just the way he's able to handle the personalities and the egos and all of the different, you know, dynamics in a clubhouse. Can he make it like a comfortable place for everybody to work? Does do, do the players like coming into the clubhouse because they like, like inspired, they feel comfortable being around the manager. I think that's, that's really the most important thing. And all the other stuff I feel like is a little bit, you know, it's, it's nice to talk about because you need something to debate or whatever, but I, I just don't think it matters. And so, is Mike Matheny that guy? I'm not sure. I've, I've just not been around, like, the team or him a lot enough to, to know that. Um, but uh, I, I think that, you know, like, if 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 the players like him and if he creates a, a dynamic in the clubhouse that is, is like, solid, that's, yeah, that he can work. But I think that you know, there's so many people who could be, you know, successful major league managers if they have the right team. I mean, it's all, it comes down to the players and the roster and, and like everything else I think is sometimes a little bit, uh, a little bit overrated. Well, Rustin, we really, really do appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. It was really good talking about your stories of covering Candace basketball, Candace football, and then, you know, your time with the Royals. It was really cool catching up and kind of, hearing out your thoughts of how you handled, you know, two different, essentially two different sports leagues. Yeah, yeah, no, no problem. Thank you for so much for having me. Yeah, we, we appreciate it, Rustin. Uh, thank you, Rustin. Yes, awesome. Thank you, guys. Have a great one. Yeah, you too. You too. All that I have is all that you see. You don't need nobody else, and you're putting this all on me. Forget that.